1: is saying, please be the one, please be the one, please be the one. And then when you're not the one, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the role that they're trying to fill. And you don't know what's in their head or what they're looking for. And sometimes neither do they.
0: check, mic check, one, two, one, two. I am here in the closet. I wonder if Terry Gross does mic checks in her closet. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of In the Envelope, the actor's podcast. The voice you just heard today is that of Rob McElhenney, who is, of course, the creator and star of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and also now, as well, Apple TV Plus' Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet, one of my favorite TV shows of the 2019-2020 television season, which I know I say a lot about a lot of the work of a lot of the guests on this podcast, but it's true, I genuinely like all of the performances and all of the writing and the directing that we have featured in some way, shape, or form on this podcast, If you go to Backstage.com, we are here in the second week of Emmy nominating, so you'll see all things Emmys, Emmys, Emmys. I'm looking at a feature that is titled 8 TV Stars Who Somehow Still Don't Have Emmy Awards. Our Emmyless Actors post has been updated for this new year, featuring actors who've been nominated multiple times, have never won the prize, and are eligible again this year. I would encourage you, listeners, especially if you're an Emmy voter... To go back through our archives of In the Envelope episodes if you are looking for something to listen to while you are in lockdown taking shelter from our global pandemic. All of the guests we've featured this spring on In the Envelope are Emmy-eligible of course. And um, check out Backstage.com for coverage on so many more. We will link in today's episode description to that Emmy-less actor's post. Reminder, in every episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast if you were able to click on the links in the description. We include links to our social media, of course, and also uh, backstage casting listings. Uh, we're including from here on out. We also, of course, from here on out are including a link to point you in the right direction of Backstage's community-driven virtual programming known as The Slate, which is still going on strong, and also our list of resources to help you join us in our support of the Black Lives Matter movement. So check that out. Check out Backstage.com. I think that is all that is on my agenda for today. Stay tuned for more episodes. Let's get to this incredible interview with Rob McElhenney, who has excellent advice for actors, for writers, for those who are maybe looking to tell their story. Honestly, this interview, if you listen through to the very end, might just be the kick in the pants that you need So, let's hear from Rob after a quick word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. This drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning, told through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Hugo Mbatara, and Mark Duplass. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including Outstanding Drama Series, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Rob McElhenney is best known as Mac on FXX's It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which he co-created and co-produces. Going on 15 seasons, the hit series is soon to be the longest-running live-action comedy in American TV history. Rob is also now the co-creator alongside Charlie Day and Megan Gans, and writer-director-star of Apple TV Plus's comedy Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet, a workplace sitcom set in a video game studio. Here he is, the one and only Rob McElhenney. how um how are you in the context of the the year 2020
1: yeah yeah I, it it certainly has been an interesting one um you know i i i feel like every conversation that i have um with with everybody um whether it's professional or personal starts with how are you doing mm. and then the the response yeah. is well cons- all things considered uh i'm yes. doing okay <laughs> So I I believe that's sort of the year, uh, a reflection of, of, of where the year is right now.
0: Totally. It's, it's kind of become a little bit of a, all of this goes unsaid, (laughs) like setting aside all of the craziness. Let's talk about something normal, maybe. Yes. And, and
1: just trying to stay as optimistic and, uh, and, and hopeful as possible.
0: Totally. And, um, I, of course, we're going to, I'm going to ask you about Mythic Quest and I'm so, I was so delighted to see this quarantine specific episode that you guys filmed. And of course, I want to ask you about that. But, um, first things first, what, what, where did this all begin? Tell me your whole life story. What? When and why, uh, when and why acting? Uh,
1: well, it was, uh, it was because I was terrible at everything else. Um, (laughs) I was not, I was just not a very good athlete, um, and, and, and and yet I had this desire uh, to be a part of something, uh, a team, uh, Mm. just something to do after school really. Uh, And so I I think I tried out for, I mean, every team uh, at every grade and every level, and then hoping one year, something was going to change. I was going to grow a foot or put on 15 pounds of muscle, or I don't know what I was hoping for, but uh, it never came to fruition. And uh, I wound up um, I was going to a, an all boys Catholic school in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and uh, there was a, I just remember sitting there and uh, uh, there was a, an announcement made that our sister school, Notre Dame Academy was looking for boys to, to play some of the male roles in the plays that they were putting on. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's, that sounds interesting. And then uh, I got further information that we, we could leave school early to go to make it in time for uh the rehearsals so i thought wow so i get to go to an all-girls school uh and i get to leave my school (laughs) early and all i got to do is read some words that somebody else wrote on a page that sounds fun and that's kind of how i started
0: that's amazing yeah was there also like a, what were the TV shows or movies, like what were you consuming growing up?
1: Yeah, well, th- that was really interesting because there was such a vast divide uh, between me even considering acting uh, and what acting was certainly in the uh, Philadelphia Catholic school uh, circuit, uh, theater productions versus yeah. what I was seeing on TV and in movies it just didn't exist to me. The idea of California or Hollywood uh, or the entertainment business Mm. just didn't even exist. Now uh, in terms of like thinking about it, like it was a a real option or a viable option for me. um, Mm. I loved movies and TV and grew up um, watching, you know, that Thursday night lineup on NBC Mm -hmm. um, in the mid eighties was, was like the real sweet spot for me. And it was amongst the best, programming in the history of television. It was, it was mm-hmm. Cosby Show at 8, Family Ties at 8.30, Cheers at 9, and Night Court at 9.30. And mm-hmm. I just remember sitting there with my whole family watching those shows, and, and but never really thinking, well, that's a profession. It was just something that right. we did together, and it was a, an event. There was no pausing it. We ha- you had to sit there and watch it, and there was a mm-hmm. communal experience. Uh, and then Saturday night was Golden Girls, like mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of shows that I, that I were, became obsessed with. And I saw every episode of, and then as I grew a little older and I got into high school, that NBC lineup came back again and it was, um, it was friends and then whatever mm-hmm. show they were trying to launch after friends. And there was a few of them that didn't really work. And then Seinfeld. And, and so uh, huh. those were the shows that I, I would be excited for. Um, but by, by that point I was then acting, but still I was coming home from the play or play rehearsal, And I was never putting two and two together. It just didn't really make sense to me. Because again, California was like, I mean, it may as well have been on Mars. Mm. And certainly New York, even New York, which was only an hour and a half away from Philadelphia. I had never been to New York. Wow. Yeah. I had had never been to New York, even though it was right there.
0: But you did go at some, point. like, what was your introduction to New York? My
1: introduction to New York was my senior year of high school, uh, a buddy of mine who graduated in the class uh, ahead of me went to Columbia, and mm-hmm. he said, "You got to come up here and visit me because you, you're you're just not going to believe what you see when you get here." <laughs> and I drove up with another friend of mine, and I can't believe it—we were 18 years old and had never, neither one of us had ever been to New York City. And you're just you're just driving up the um, the Turnpike, the Jersey Turnpike there, and then all of a sudden you just see it—you just see the skyline. <laughs> from, and it seemed like, oh, we're almost there. But no, you're not almost there. It's just that the skyline is that massive. And this was, of course, right. this would have been 1996. So the towers were still there. Um, and you're looking at almost like two different skylines because you see where the Empire State Building is and then you see down uh, downtown in, in mm. Battery Park. And, I just, and then it was still another hour, 45 minutes before we got there. Mm. And I just remember coming through that tunnel and just, it, just having my mind completely blown apart and then driving up to Columbia and, and lo and behold, uh, I see right there, right, right near the Columbia campus is Tom's restaurant, which Mm -hmm. is the diner in Seinfeld.
0: Completely. And
1: yeah. And I just couldn't, from (laughs) that point forward, (laughs) I could not wait to get out of my house and move to New York city.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And it became possible in your head. Yes. Well
1: any anybody who's ever, whoever comes to New York City for the first time you just can't help but feel that absolutely anything is possible.
0: Right. Especially yeah, it's that thing of like I saw this on my TV screen and then here it is in person.
1: Yes. Totally. And I just I just stared at it for like I would just I I still still to this day and I, I eventually did move to new york and then lived all over the city still mm-hmm. when i would go up and i would see that restaurant it still gave me goosebumps every time
0: every time that's really cool that's really cool to hear and i i think it must also be true would you agree that like growing up a, a lot of those sitcoms you mentioned i can s- kind of see in your work is it true that like especially as a writer that there's almost a subliminal, subconscious training of like, is is watching TV part of what informs the process of making TV?
1: I can't speak in general terms, but I can speak for myself and mm-hmm. and say absolutely yes. I, I didn't, I don't have any um, formal writing training, right. um, But but I just noticed that I was able to, I was able to write a scene, um, just kind of by instinct. And I, and I don't think I was born with that. I think it was something that was just that seeped into my subconscious over hours and hours and hours of watching television, which I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily, um, I don't allow my children to watch as much TV as, as, as I watched. Uh, (laughs) Right. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but, but it, but if you are looking to get into television writing, uh, number one, without a doubt Watch as much television as you possibly can.
0: Excellent. Yeah. I mean, what else was going on in those first couple of years? You you was it a lot of scraping by? Were there a lot of survival jobs in those first years in New York? Uh,
1: not those first years, but um, but for the first 10 years, I would I would say it okay. was like a good solid decade of not <laughs> wow. working. Uh or I would say it's like eight and a half, eight and a half years. I mean, I moved to New York when I was uh 19 or 18. And uh, I moved up to the Bronx and I, I uh, slept on people's couches at Fordham University because I had some friends mm-hmm. um, that went there. And then I just got a job um, bar backing on the Upper West Side. And then I just jumped from bar backing to bartending to waiting tables, r- really any job that I could, that I could get. Um, and then was, was auditioning for um, commercials and television shows and, and okay. movies during the day.
0: Did you know backstage? Did you ever use backstage to find auditions? Of course. Of course. Who didn't?
1: Of course. I mean, that was (laughs) the thing
0: you would get backstage. You would open it up looking
1: for open calls. You would just, you know, hope to God that you fit the bill. And I was fortunate enough because I, I looked really young. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was 18, but I looked like I was 15. And Mm -hmm. so I was able to get into a lot of rooms because they were just simply because they were looking for adults to play children in various television commercials (laughs) and things like that.
0: And so it was mostly commercials just because that was kind of, those are the gigs that were right there and available.
1: Yes. I was fortunate enough to, to meet, um, to meet an agent at like at an open call and she, um, and she was like, Hey, how old are you? And I said, I'm 18. And I just saw like dollar signs like flash in <laughs> her eyes. Because she was a ch- she was a kid agent. So she was a she gotcha. was an agent for children, not for adults. But uh-huh. she's like, Would you mind being represented by someone who handles children? Because mm-hmm. I think I can get you work as an adult playing a child. And I said, Whatever will get me out of working until five o'clock in the morning every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, I'll take.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: So that's what I wound up doing. And I I booked a few commercials around that time. I think there was a a period where I, and you know how it works too, it's like when it rains, it pours. I booked like three commercials in the span of two months or something. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, like that's it. Now it's just from here on out, (laughs) from here on out, it's gonna be easy street. And then I booked a, a small role in a movie with Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford Right. And that was like my first like real like acting gig. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, great. Now I'm going to, now, now it's all going to, it's all going to be roses from this point. It's going to snowball. Yeah. Yes. And then, then I, I got cut out of that movie. I didn't <laughs> yes. work. I didn't book another commercial for a year. Oh. And the job that I was able to quit the year before, luckily I didn't burn any bridges. Oh, okay. I went back. And said, yeah. "Hi, remember me?" And they said, "Yes." And I said, "Can I have that old <laughs> job back, please?" <laughs> so that was a real, really humbling and eye-opening experience. Um, it's yeah. not like I took all that money and just, like you know, bought a car or, or I didn't even move into a nicer apartment. I, I put it into a savings account. But but you know, that money goes fast, especially when you're living in an expensive place like New York City. And so. I had to go back and and humbly ask for for my job back. And and then that really didn't stop until I moved to L.A. And then when I moved to L.A., I was still working uh, in restaurants.
0: Right. Was it sort of a you're not starting from complete scratch in L.A., but moving to a new city is always a little bit starting from scratch.
1: Oh yeah, no. It, it it depends on what you mean by scratch. I mean, I was living in a garage, uh-huh. so uh-huh. I was living in a garage beside, behind, behind someone's house, and and waiting tables again. So, for all yeah. intents and purposes, it was it was scratch.
0: Yeah, I mean, th- this is exactly the kind of stuff we love to hear on this podcast. The kind of early days of like that mentality of once things started, when it rains, it pours. It's sort of you sort of get tricked into thinking that, right? And then there's a rude awakening of like. Of reality for most artists.
1: Yes. And it it helps also to to understand the history of our business and to look at people's careers. And you look right. at people's careers who you want to emulate and say, ooh, that person had a very interesting career. And you just kind of take a look at it and you realize that most likely there are ebbs, well, definitely there are ebbs and flows to everyone's career. Yes. But most likely there was a golden period for that person. And and then, you know, prior to that. For vast majority of people, there was great struggle. And then they, then maybe they hit, but even when they hit that eventually ends and it ends for everyone. Yeah. And yeah. some people handle that really well. Some mm-hmm. people don't, some people handle that with class and dignity and some people, some people crumble. And I think it's just, I think it's a, what your, what your expectations are and what you, and how tethered you are to reality um, mm-hmm. and and grateful for what you have when you have it? And then also what's your plan for when it does end and or fade and or slow down? Uh, how, are mm-hmm. you gonna, how are you gonna handle that? And, and those are the things I think about all the time.
0: Sure, well, and that's actually what I was gonna ask because it's true that you must think about that now, but back in the day, what were your expectations of the industry? Did you know there would be ebbs and flows and a ton of rejection what would you say your level of like optimism was i was pretty optimistic Mm -hmm. um
1: and and i think that was the perfect confluence of being uh young and and full of uh willful ignorance to the realities of Mm -hmm. of of a successful career in this particular business and you know, the truth is that there's, that that is the confluence of so many different factors. Um, it's only looking back as yeah. um, as you do to realize like, wow, I had so many more opportunities than a lot of people did for obvious reasons, especially at that time, at that time period. And if it was hard for me, I can't imagine how difficult it was for other people. Uh, and that's really what like, as we're all grappling w- with what, what privilege really means, I think, I think I certainly was resistant to that idea for so long. Um, No, I mean, not, not aggressively resistant, but it just didn't resonate with me because I felt like, well, hold on a second. You don't know anything about me. I struggled. I didn't know anybody in this business. I grew up poor. I worked as hard as I could to get where I am. And it's only until somebody really sat me down and was like, yeah, right. Now imagine, I'm not saying that you didn't have a rough road, (laughs) but imagine that road uh, when you are tethered with all of these other things, this check, this check. Now look at, when you look at your life and your career, the things that you had to struggle with, someone else had to struggle with those things too. And they also had to struggle with these things that you never had to. And
0: And you you go down a checklist.
1: Yes, I never even thought about it because it was outside of my, my, my worldview and my POV. Absolutely, yeah. And so it's only then when you can really recognize how fortunate you, you are and then try to help people uh, who aren't, who aren't in necessarily in the positions that you've found mm. yourself in over the course of the years.
0: Yes. Well, and the helping people for sure. I mean, that's something that in theory, I suppose you, you got to do later maybe after a bunch of success. Although, I mean, what what advice do you have for early career artists who are looking to help themselves and give themselves work, but also, yeah, to maybe, provide for their community to band together and make connections within the, the arts community? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I,
1: I give, I give the same piece of advice to everybody who ever asks me about how to break into the business and it's to Uh make, to make what you want to see, just make it cool. Yeah. And, and people either rise to that challenge or they, or they don't. And, um, the truth is that you just don't have any more excuses. You have the the almost everybody that asked me that question. No, I'll say everybody that asked me that question has a f- smartphone in their pocket. Everybody sure, and whether it's whether it's a whether it's a, an iPhone or an Android, the camera that is in that phone is better than the camera that we shot season 10 of Sunny on. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I'm season 10, not season one, season 10. Mm. you're collecting 4k imagery and professional grade sound i'm doing that right now with with the telephone that i also use to check my email and and text and surf the internet with so so you you have the hardware now you have to figure out um how to tell the story and and backstage is such a great resource for that because because I, i was talking to a a young person who wrote a script and I was saying this very thing, go, go make it, go shoot it Mm -hmm. yourself. I mean, the best way to learn whether or not your writing is working is actually shooting it and, and, and seeing it to fruition. And they said, yeah, but I don't have, I don't know how to find actors. (laughs) I was like, you don't know how to find actors in LA. (laughs) Well, wait a second. You got other problems. (laughs) You have other problems you might need to address because actors are everywhere.
0: That's the one thing not in short supply. Yeah, exactly. Great <laughs>
1: actors are everywhere looking for that opportunity. And, and, you know, the first thing is, well, well, I can't pay, I can't pay people. Well, well, yeah, you're making short film. You're making home videos. I didn't, I didn't pay Glenn and Charlie when we were making the original home movie for, oh, mm-hmm. for Sonny, mm-hmm. um, because you're, you're young and you're just trying to figure it out. So, right you know, like those are the kind of, as long as nobody's being exploited, right? You're not taking advantage mm-hmm. of people. You're actually working together as a community to, to, to make something together. And now we're, we're so much more connected than certainly we've, we've ever been. So you got to reach out and make those connections and, and go make something.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I wanted to ask too, like, at what point did this all c- get on your radar? If it was kind of originally about acting, I love the advice about create something that you don't see, What was it that you weren't seeing in those early days that you then wanted to create?
1: Well, that's a twofold, uh, uh, answer. What I wasn't seeing was any success (laughs) whatsoever, uh, as a performer. And so I had to, I had to figure out a way in which I could make it for myself. So there was that. And then, but then when I really sat down to kind of figure out what it is I wanted to work on, I was just kind of going through the Rolodex of shows that I've loved in my Mm. life, um, and trying to figure out how you can I can make my version of what that would be um, a, an original take on a sitcom. And, and generally, um, you know the original take or at least at the time on a sitcom is just what's your idea for a story and those characters because the because the the, the, the platform itself uh, hadn't changed much. I mean you ha- certainly you have the multicam versions of mm. TV programs, but then you had single cam. Uh, versions of of TV shows, but the, but the 30 minute uh, sitcom, you know, yeah. that there, there's a format that's there. So I, as I was thinking like, well, what would be my version of that? I was thinking about Friends and how yeah. much I loved Friends. I really loved Friends. And, and I just thought, well, that's like a perfect TV show in a lot of ways. Um, so you don't want to redo that, but, but, but the idea of characters, I mean, in the theme song, the theme song is I'll be there for you. Like no matter what happens, I'll be there for you. And mm-hmm. I thought, I, you know, what would be an, an, an interesting take is what if you did a show where the characters would never be there for each other, regardless <laughs> the of the circumstances? Yes, it's like the opposite of Friends. <laughs> and I was like, w- would people be able to enjoy that, or would these characters just be so insufferable that you you wouldn't you wouldn't want to spend time with them? Um, so that's really w- what like the challenge that 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 we had, but. I don't know. I just wrote this script and I brought it to Glenn and Charlie. And I said, I think this is funny. These people are terrible. What do you think? And they said, we think it's funny too. Let's figure out a way to shoot it. So that's what we did.
0: That's really cool. Like, you know, what's sort of occurring to me now is like the, um, the trend in TV of the anti-hero, I guess this is mostly true for like intense, serious dramas, but it's always sunny. was almost like ahead of that of like, let's take the opposite of friends and like, it's an experiment, right. To see how much the audience can like tolerate? Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, but that's why, why we've tried for 14 and now coming on 15 years um, to make sure that if you're paying attention, which the vast majority of our audience does, that what you're seeing is not what you're seeing and that you're taking in something else. That's just what is at the heart of all satire, right? So we're, Mm -hmm. we're just we're essentially satirizing a, a, a sitcom. And so how do you yeah. do that week to week to week to week for 15 years and make it with these terrible people and still make it clear that the filmmakers are not terrible people? Um, and that's what we endeavor to right. do so that, so that each time you watch an episode, and, and one of the, honestly, one of the um, best compliments that I, I hear about Sonny is people say, oh, I, I've seen that episode 20 times. And they'll just watch it over and over and over again. Oh, and each sure. time there's something else to watch. Uh, or they didn't pick up on something that we were that we were putting in there. I mean, yeah. we we have the luxury of only doing ten episodes a season, so that allows for us to take extra care and to layer in things that that you wouldn't necessarily layer into a television series because you don't have the time. You're doing twenty five of them a year, and we're able to do that with Sunny. And I think it's very clear that the filmmakers themselves are very different than the characters, uh, and that we're saying something that is not voiced directly by the characters themselves
0: yeah almost a meta element
1: yes which we lean into from time to
0: time totally totally um and by now of course 14 seasons i mean congratulations it's really it's i'm i'm curious to see are you guys gonna figure out how to film season 15 is that gonna happen oh yeah yeah
1: yeah we're even if it's all over zoom or no 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 no, <laughs> okay. no, no because that that show that show just wouldn't make sense um yeah. in quarantine because those characters would never ever stick to quarantine like my my imagination oh, i i'm imagining them in the bar right now trying to figure out how they can hold a rally like i i feel like they're <laughs> they're definitely like within day within two days they were like well this this is a croc, right? Like this doesn't really exist. It's a, it's a hoax. And so that that'll be an episode of the show, I'm sure at some point, but, but we couldn't make the season like that.
0: (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. So 14 seasons in, I wanted to, I, we always like asking about the writing and producing aspects of it. Are those separate, especially when, if you're also acting on the show, do you have the system down now where are there a bunch of different hats that you wear in each role and you take off one hat before you're wearing the other? Or do, do all the roles, all the roles you have on that show sort of blend together?
1: Yeah, they, they blend together. I mean, it was our original goal, and it is every season to write all the scripts before we get into production so that we're not okay. in production and writing at the same time because it's mm-hmm. too hard. And I think we've only achieved that once in 14 oh, okay. years. Um, and And really, what we've recognized is that that's just part of the process. We're gonna be writing while we're shooting. And that's kind of miserable because you're acting and producing and writing and then overseeing the the, the editorial. So, uh, but that's just a part of the gig and, and, and I'm used to it by this point.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original series, The Morning Show. This drama series explores the cutthroat world of morning news and the lives of the people who help America wake up in the morning. Fold through the lens of two complicated women working to navigate the minefield of high-octane jobs while facing crises in both their personal and professional lives. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, Billy Crudup, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, and Mark Duplass. For your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including Outstanding Drama Series, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. Let's talk about Mythic Quest. What were the inspirations behind behind this one? I can see some of the the DNA of like the classic sitcom format, but yes. then flipped on its head.
1: Yes. So what we what we wanted to do was um, well, first of all, I, I had no interest in making a show about a video game company. We were. Okay. I was approached by a video game company who said, "Would you be interested in making a show like this?" And I said no. And they said, "Would you like to come?" to Montreal, which is where our, um, one of our studios uh, is based and just come meet some people and check it out. And so I'd never been to Montreal before and I thought, well, here's an opportunity to go to one of the world's you know, great cities for free and I'll just I'll just take them up on it and I'll, maybe I'll go meet with the, the gaming studio for a couple hours and then the rest of the time I'll, I'll go out to great restaurants and have a good time. And then I think within an hour of being in the game studio, I knew we had a show. Um, and so I called Charlie and I called Megan Gans and I said, I, I think this should be our next show.
0: That's so cool. And Ian, you've said before that Ian was, acc- he accidentally resembles a lot of the, the, I guess, the type of person that, I mean, the role that he plays at this video game company. He was not in- directly inspired by any particular person or people, right?
1: Well, he was inspired, inspired by people, um, but not in, okay. any one person. I, I think there's just something very specific about that job um, yeah. and, that, and that position and what it in, entails. I mean, you really are building, you are, you are at the head of, of a team that is building a world. So, right. there's a certain complex I think that comes <laughs> naturally uh with that position and yeah. and and it makes sense of course, it makes sense you 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 are truly building that world that millions of people all over the world are coming to to spend time their their free time in mm. and sometimes they're not 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 so free time uh because they they love that world so much and uh, I just thought, wow, that's like a fascinating person and so you know, I spoke with many of them. And of course you you, you you talk to enough people, even if they have the same job title uh, yeah. and position and and you're gonna get a varied uh, response. And that's what I got. And so I just sort of took bits and pieces of different conversations and different people and kind of molded them into one really insufferable narcissist, um, <laughs> which I, I tend to like playing.
0: Uh-huh. Sure, sure. And talk to me about the casting of the rest of the show. Do, what do you remember about that process?
1: I remember it being really fun. Um, we, we wanted to make it look and feel like uh, authentic. That's what, we're, mm-hmm. that's what we're really going for. So we wanted to make it feel like a real game studio. And that is what a real game studio looks like. It's a lot mm-hmm. of older people, mostly dudes, and then a lot of young people. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of women uh, now in, in the studio in, in varied positions, but mostly uh, very young. And so that's kind of what we went for. So if you notice in the main cast, the men are kind of on the older side, and sure. the women are in entry level positions and they're younger, except for Poppy, of course. And that's mm-hmm. that's true. And that's because the gaming studios, probably in, within the last five or six years, made a, made a concerted effort to bring in more women finally. But, but of course they bring them in and they bring them in in entry level positions. And so you, you go into these studios and that's what you see. So that's what we were going for. And, and they really are from all over the world. I mean, the studio in Montreal, I spoke with so many people and it's, you have people coming in from, from everywhere, every part of the globe, because there's this shared love of games.
0: I got to say that something about Mythic Quest from the very first episode, it feels like a comforting, there's something about an ensemble comedy where the the uh, the dynamics are already established and you as a viewer sort of already sense that there's a history between the characters. I'm wondering was there in the casting process how much did you think about chemistry and the idea that this is an ensemble comedy?
1: Yes. So that's just something you can't <laughs> you can't re, you can't create. It just is. Yeah. So and that's that's part of the magic. Um, and it's part of the frustration sometimes, but it's also when it's working, mm. it's really part of the fun. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that with Sunny, like, I don't know why we have chemistry together. We just do all of us. And why does this cast have chemistry? I don't know. But I I do know that because you just go through the normal casting process like you like you like you always do. You know, we've made pilots before and they haven't they haven't worked for 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 various reasons. You just don't know why or how things coalesce in the way that they do but when they do you don't ask questions and you just <laughs> you just write to it mm-hmm. and you recognize that that it's lightning in a bottle so just try to try to harness it as much as you can and i knew i, I remember shooting the first scene day one mm-hmm. and i remember you know that w- we cut and we were doing another camera setup and i pulled meg aside and was like you you know you, you noticed that right and she was like oh yeah we have a show and we knew we I'm had sure. a show after the first scene because a scene like a show is just we we know we can write it so the 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 show then just becomes can it's not even about whether or not the actors can pull it off it's whether or not um that that as an ensemble we're going to become uh Mm -hmm.
0: greater than the sum of our parts yeah like a fifth element of um cohesion yeah
1: and that's not that's not something you can produce or prepare for or direct or write to it just is
0: and was this also like uh you try to do with with sunny was the entire season ripped written beforehand and then filmed or were you writing as you go
1: uh we were writing as we as we went because Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the beginning um of making a show you really we really didn't know what was going to work or what what wasn't so for example the character of Joe, as played by mm-hmm. Jesse Ennis, the assistant, didn't even exist in the okay. first script. And Jesse came in, read for Poppy, she read for Dana, oh, wow. she read for Rachel, she read for Sue. And <laughs> wow. I just kept bringing her back and saying, oh, she's not right for that. And I remember sitting with uh, Jeannie McCarthy, uh, who's our casting director, and, uh-huh. and Nicole and, and that incredible crew over there. And just sitting there going, hmm, we got to like, she's not right for any of these roles, but like, and I just kept thinking like, well, let's bring her back in for Rachel. Let's bring her back in for Dana. And then eventually I was like, she's not really right for any of these roles. And then Jeannie was like, well, you better write her something because yeah. you can't miss out. And you she was right with her. Yeah, of course. And that's the relationship that's as the relationship should be in a comedy between writer and writer, producer and actor, which is once you find that special person, you have to adapt to what they can do, even if it means creating a character uh, from whole cloth and, and putting it into the show. (laughs) And so, so and and so those are the kinds of things that happen all the time. You realize like, Oh wow, there's chemistry between these two people. Let's um, let's start writing to
0: it. And that starts to really dictate that can dictate plot that can dictate the story.
1: It dictates the entire show
0: i mean look
1: at you look back at at family matters, right that was a show mm-hmm. that was a show about a family who and then at one point there was like a funny neighbor that came by well yeah. well within ten episodes, that show became the Erkel show, and he yeah. was like a he was like a a national treasure <laughs> for like a full like decade and yeah. you know I, I I don't obviously that's a that's a completely different circumstance than what w- we're going for but but once you see somebody who's a family ties is a great example too that was a show about that really was a show about two hippies raising kids Mm in the 80s and one of their kids happens to be like a neoconservative and and then but it was really told through the the point of view of the parents well after the pilot they realized like well who's michael j fox who's this kid he's a star and then all of a sudden it became his show and so that's not the way we 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 look at things or handle things but we do recognize that when you find that, that thing, whether it's a relationship, uh, a person, a character, a dynamic uh, between two people, between multiple people, you try to at least honor that the best way you can and then not beat it into the ground because people mm. will get sick of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. And so talk to me about this quarantine episode. This, uh, how do we, what, what do we call it? The, it's a special episode, I suppose. <laughs> um, well we were in quarantine for a couple of months
1: and um, we were just trying to figure out ways to get people paid for a couple of weeks. Honestly, I just wanted to get the crew paid. Yeah. So we were, we were in the middle of shooting episode one of season two when we shut down. So the crew was all Hmm. up and running and then we had to shut down and you know, there, there's a, there's a very common misconception out there that the entertainment business is is full of of millionaires who live you know behind mm-hmm. gates and and on private islands and the truth of the matter is that represents 0.01% of our of our industry the most of the industry sure. are are working class people who are living um you know if not if not paycheck to paycheck at least month to month and that's um you know that's a difficult proposition as everybody is grappling with which is all of a sudden you're not working so we wanted to find a way in which we could get everybody working and and the more we talked about it and thought about it, the more we realized the only way we could do that is is by shooting an episode in quarantine. But how could we do that without anybody leaving their homes? So we had to write a very uh, specific episode for that. And that's what we did.
0: And it speaks again to this idea that like TV is adaptable and you can adjust course (laughs) and um, even change up the structure of a specific episode. Or I mean, possibly going forward, do you see the show Continuing to innovate going forward.
1: Yes. Well, sure. I mean, I I think about I think about the way we approached season one and what we wanted to what we wanted to do was make it feel like um, the first few episodes felt like something you had seen before, uh, or at least a version of it. It was our version of a workplace comedy. The dynamics were uh, familiar. Um, now the, the world itself was maybe a little bit odd because you hadn't seen something about Mm -hmm. game development, or at least it's not very common. Um, but a lot of the dynamics kind of felt like you had seen versions of them before. Um, and that was all by design. We wanted it to feel familiar and, and, and big and broad so that a lot of people, uh, that we could draw in a large audience. I I already have a niche show, which I love, and they have, Mm. we have a lot of, um, a stronghold of those <laughs> uh, of vociferous fans um and yet i wanted to make something that was a little bit more accessible uh to a larger audience but then once we kind of had people invested in the characters and in the show start to evolve it so that it started to feel a little bit different and that we had an episode in the middle of the season uh that was very different from anything we had done previous to that. And then from that point forward, the show takes a turn and changes. Yeah, And that was all again, done by design, but we wanted to make sure that we weren't right off the bat creating something that felt niche. We wanted it to feel big and broad and then started to turn it on its head. And then the mm-hmm. quarantine episode is just an extension of that. And season two just uh, comes right out the gates, you know, in a completely different fashion than anything we've done before.
0: I just find something really comforting about Mythic Quest and I almost don't even know what it is, but it's, I guess it's what you're saying about like, it's broad, it's a, you guys went broad with this idea that it's like recognizable dynamics and then continued to turn that on its head.
1: Yeah, well, we've had a lot of practice and that, that helps. So yeah. I've been working on a show for 14 years and running a show and so, and, and also con- continuing to watch other shows and seeing what other people are doing. And, and, and really being both, uh, just that perfect mixture of being both, um, inspired and terrified to see how talented <laughs> people are and what they're doing, uh, with the platform. And, mm. and I w we wanted to do our version of that. Um, like really mixing it up a little bit and and seeing what we could do.
0: Do you think of it as rules as like, these are the rules and tropes of sitcoms or of TV writing. And then do you think about breaking them? Um,
1: no, not not necessarily. I mean, we don't really discuss it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we we definitely say things like, "Well, just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean it's not worth trying." Um, but mm-hmm. there are certain things that we notice. I mean, it is interesting that the format of of situational comedy, um, as created by the honeymooners, is a, is a, is a thirty minute block, right? So it's either, mm-hmm. it, and it varies between like twenty minutes. To right. th- about thirty-four, right? But but anything like beyond that, it starts to just feel like a different form, form or format. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just feels different, and maybe that's just because we're conditioned, having like a few generations of audience um, watching these, sh- growing up watching these shows. So maybe we have an internal clock. But who knows? I mean, look at what's going on on TikTok. I mean, the, I, mm-hmm. that's another thing. I, I'll 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 go into a TikTok hole and watch people, young people creating things from nothing um, that are so innovative and cool and different. And Mm. you talk about breaking the rules. I mean, they're basically just taking storytelling into their own hands and saying, this is our version of it. So me, sometimes I look at that and feel like a dinosaur, not because I don't, I can't relate to it, because I can, and I'm inspired by it, but I don't Mm -hmm. have the level of um, talent that they have for short form content and that's, um, Again, inspiring and terrifying.
0: Not yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, that's cool to hear because then maybe a couple of years from now we will see a project from you that is inspired by TikTok. Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, and, <laughs> it, 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 and it works both ways. I hope that those people, those young people that are making those TikToks, also recognize that 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 they're storytellers, and that if they can mm-hmm. figure out a way to harness their ability to to tell stories even in short form that yeah. that's a profession that that and 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 the profession isn't just getting famous and getting followers and getting people to pay attention to you it's mm-hmm. actually being able to then use that platform to inspire and to um you know at best if you're making a comedy again you can you can bring a little levity into the world And, and, and at worst, I should say, and at at best get people to feel a little bit less alone.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, and in that vein, like what, what is your advice for particularly with production stalled and most people in lockdown for actors stuck at home, for writers stuck at home, maybe specifically for actors who want to try writing? Do you, do you have a writing routine? First of all? No, I'm a morning person. So I get up early. I like to get
1: up really early uh, before everybody else in my house gets up. Um, Mm -hmm. Generally before the sun comes up so that I'm alone for a few hours. And that's when I find that I'm most creative. Um, And then I'll, I'll just write for as long as I can till the kids get up and then I'll make breakfast and um, then have, have breakfast with them. And then I'll, I'll, I'll go back into my hole and write for a few more hours. But when, when I'm in writing mode, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing all day. That's uh-huh. kind of my routine. That's kind of my routine. And, and I would say that if that's, um, if that's something that people are interested in, I mean, I also know other writers who, I mean, I was just talking to Craig Mazin, uh, who wrote, mm-hmm. uh, Chernobyl. We were just chatting over the weekend and his routine is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> he, he, he writes from about 1130 to about 230 every day. That's it. That's it. That's it. And that's oh. and and he comes up and he's one of the most prolific script yeah. doctors in town, and he has been for years. And and then just like casually on the side, he also wrote the one of the greatest miniseries of all time last year. Mm. And he does it by writing for three hours a day. Now, he, that's a mm. gift, and also he's honed that gift over years and years. But that's just something that I don't have. I I don't have that intellect or that ability to express myself uh, like that in in, in such. E- economical fashion. I need mm-hmm. to like beat my head up against a wall for hours to come up with, <laughs> with what, what we do.
0: So it really is just about finding uh, what routine works for you because everyone's going to have a different, uh, strength.
1: Yes. Look again, it's like the, the, co- you got to find the perfect confluence of making sure that you're, that you're giving yourself a break, that you're, that you're mm-hmm. not too hard on your, on yourself. But also recognizing when you got to stop making excuses, stop being lazy and just go do the thing. <laughs> right. And then, yes. and then, yes. and then finding that balance where you're like, okay, now you're being too hard on yourself and you're, 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 you're creating expectations that are unreasonable. So just mm-hmm. relax, take a breath and, and, and maybe just take a look at, and at altering what those expectations of yourself are. Then, (laughs) then when you find yourself giving yourself too much of a break, recognize that you're, you're being a baby and get back nothing against babies. I love babies,
0: but stop crying and go back to work. Yes. That is music to my ears. That's exactly the, (laughs) that's exactly the kind of advice I need to hear. So thank you. you. We all do. I, I, (laughs) I, I remind myself of that every day. Yes. You can't go too easy on yourself and you can't go too hard on yourself. Right. Yeah. Well, gosh, Rob, this is great. Thank you so much. Um, Can I ask you some very backstagey, off off-the-cuff, not-quite-rapid-fire questions? Sure. This um, early career version of yourself that was, um, uh, well, first of all, if you could go back in time and give that person one piece of advice, what would it be? What do you wish you'd known?
1: That everybody you think is in charge uh, is not. And the people that you are going into those rooms for are often uh just as just as nervous and scared huh. and um and confused as you are wow <laughs> yeah I, that that I found really empowering as I as I grew older and realized and 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 got into those rooms and realized like oh wow these people I I thought these people were in charge no huh. they're not they're not, they might be holding a title, a job title right now that puts them yeah. qu- quote unquote in charge of a particular decision that's being made. But that doesn't mean that you can't break through that and become one of those right. people should you choose to.
0: Right. Right. And and they're human too. And they're going through their own stuff and you have no idea what that is.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, it, the rejection is just a part of it in in that profession. And it never stops. Because you're, right. it, you're going to get it at every turn all the time. And and then once you're, once you actually did do get that gig after being rejected 50 times, then you're going to be, you're going to get a form of rejection by every person that you come in contact with regard <laughs> regarding that particular gig, whether they liked it or whether they hated it or whether you're too short or too tall or too skinny or too, uh, you know, it never ends. So you just have yeah. to recognize where it's coming from, who's given it and not give a shit.
0: Yes. And as you said earlier, there's no, no one in existence has ever had a constant forever winning streak. There's going to be ebbs and flows. Yes. It's just about how you respond to them. Yes. Well, and so this was the other thing that kind of just occurred to me that this early career thing you had of, I believe it happened more than once that you were in, you were cast in a big movie and you filmed a scene in a big movie and that scene was cut. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what advice do you have for people Because that does happen to people. Oh, it's, it's
1: devastating. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely devastating. It happened twice. It happened twice to me in big, in big movies early right. in my, in my career. And it's brutal. I mean, I, I don't, there's no there's no sugarcoating it. I mean, it just feels terrible. And, yeah. and the thing is, uh, having been on the other end of it where I have to make those decisions, um, to cut yeah. an actor out. I mean, 99% of the 99.9% of the time, it has nothing to do with the performance of the actor. Nothing. It's just that the pacing is off. Um, the it's too long. You got to cut something. And when sure. you cut something, the first thing to go are is guest cast. Because you have mm. to service the characters. So it's really nothing personal. In the same way that yeah. when you don't get that job, it's not really a rejection. Because the truth of the matter is everybody that's in that casting room is rooting for every single person that comes in. Like when you're when you're there and I'm having a director session and it's down to the last like, you know, 20 people for a for a job, I am begging each person to come in and be the person. Because I want, I want to cast that role. So there's this feeling of like, sometimes it's uh, me, you know, as you're walking into those castings that it's me versus them. Right. And, and, but it's not, that's not it at all. It really isn't it. Everybody there is saying, please be the one, please be the one, please be the one. And then when you're not the one, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what they're trying, the role that they're trying to fill. And you don't know what's in their head or what they're looking for. And sometimes neither, neither do they. (laughs)
0: Right. That's exactly what our listeners need to hear, I think. So thank you. Great. Um last question, what is one performance every actor should see and why? Wow. <laughs> Film. One performance TV, anything. I would say
1: people should go people who are who are interested in specifically comedy and comedic timing should go back and watch The Golden Girls and just mm-hmm. study Bea Arthur. Mm. Just study her because if you look at it in script form, she is the straight person. She shouldn't be the one crushing. Hmm. She's got Blanche, she's got Rose, and she's got Sophia who come in and just kill. They've got all the killer lines and the zingers. But to me, B. Arthur is the glue that holds the whole thing together and she's the funniest Hmm. person on the show. And that's just her ability to, to deliver straight lines in a way that... That that not only does it kill, but it uplifts her, her co-stars and makes them even funnier. And that's just a performance and a character and an actor who, who's just at the top of their game.
0: That's such a great answer, especially this idea of like, read the script and then watch the final product and, wa- and look at the difference between the two.
1: Yeah, think about the scripts of that show and, 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 then, and then what the final product is. And, sh- and that shows you mm-hmm. the power of what an actor can bring.
0: Well, that's this, what a perfect note to end on. Rob, thank you. This is so great. Um, any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? Go make your thing. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yes, that's great. This is really inspiring. This You've really given us fantastic advice. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Thanks for being such a great resource for actors.